ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент притих, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. You can help support the podcast by going to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and click on the Patreon Donate button and join the Table of Ranks. This week's podcast is the second in my series exploring U.S.-Russia relationships. The purpose of this U.S.-Russia series is to look at the long historical contacts, relationships, and context between the two countries since the 18th century. In today's episode, I talk to Ivan Kurilla, about the Russian study of American history and U.S.-Russia relations in the 19th century. Ivan Kurilla is a professor of history and international relations at the European University at St. Petersburg, where he specializes in the history of U.S.-Russia relations, especially during the American antebellum and civil war. He's the author of many articles and books, and some of his scholarship in English includes the article Abolition of Serfdom in Russia an American newspaper and journal opinion in the book New Perspectives on Russian-American Relations, edited by Norman Saul, and with Victoria Zhurilova, Russian-Soviet Studies in the United States, Americanistica in Russia, Mutual Representations in Academic Projects, published by Lexington Books. Here's Ivan Kurilla. Since this interview is part of my series on U.S.-Russia relationships, and I'm trying to do this in a very broad historical sense, uh, I thought we'd start by having you talk about the Russian study of American history, and, and what are some of the main historical questions that drive Russian historians of America? Uh, well, you know, uh, the Russian studies of America started... Uh, like as, as a big field, it started during the Cold War. Of course, there were some some historians who did American studies before the Second World War, even before the Russian Revolution. But uh, it only only after the Second World War, after the beginning of the start of the Cold War, uh, Russian or Soviet that time Soviet studies of uh, the United States became a like, big institutionalized field. And, uh, you know, in the middle of the Cold War, in 19, uh, you know, late 60s, uh, the Acad Academic Institute for USA and Canada Studies was established, and uh, the group to study uh, American political system was established in the Moscow State University. So there were products uh, or byproducts of the Cold War. And uh, that's why uh, that time the major topics of Russian his uh, historians of America were the uh, American foreign policy, different aspects of American foreign policy, American expansionism, uh, you know, that, it called it, that, that was called that time American uh, foreign policy in Europe, uh, Cold War itself. And that was the first probably important topic of American history, but also American economic history, just because of Soviet, uh, because Soviet uh, 
historians were mostly Marxist by, you know, methodological uh, basis. And that's why they studied like social economic uh, development of America because they wanted to find a class struggle to find the revolutionary. Okay, uh, when I was a student, I studied like two American revolutions, uh, meaning the American War for Independence and the Civil War as as a type of American revolution. And that was a part of of, uh, the field uh, of interest of Russian uh, Soviet time historians. So that was, uh, you know, the Soviet Union tried to uh, establish and support uh, the historical study like of everything of any country of any period of time so they tried to uh, suggest to offer uh, its own soviet or marxist uh, interpretation of all the major events in history so we had uh, uh, books of soviet american uh, historians uh, you know describing everything from the colonial time to to the 20th century and that was, well, they were of different quality. Some of them were really good. Some of them were okay, like interpretations. And, and some of them, unfortunately, were all okay. Now I cannot say unfortunately, but some of the of, of Soviet book, of course, we were just propaganda. And well, but, you know, we, we had different uh, type of uh, scholarship that time. But we had uh, like a you know, general study of everything in America, on all the American history. Well, mostly from Marxist or almost for everything from Marxist position and with class struggle, with a critic of American expansionism and critic of American, uh, you know, class divisions. But so I can even say that uh, early in the 50s or even a bit earlier, uh, the Soviet historians uh, of America, the Soviet scholars of America, did pay attention to uh, race problem in the United States. And probably made it even did it even a bit earlier than American scholars uh, started to study it seriously. Okay, because because of the propaganda, probably because Soviet historians needed to find uh, points of criticism, they needed to find uh, you know critical cracks in American political system. And they okay in the fifties, it was definitely was a racial problem. And they uh, studied. I I read as a student uh, many years ago I read Soviet studies of American uh, race uh, problems published as early as the 50s and so, so because of the critical approach because they needed a criticism so it was you know this type of uh, study probably you know probably American uh, historians of Russia also had some good insights because they needed to study needed to find uh, you know weak parts of the Soviet system. So it was a mirror side uh, study. And and how has it changed since the collapse of the Soviet Union? What kind of questions have, have been picked up or, or explored? Yeah, it's changed both uh, methodologically and institutionally. Institutionally, the Russian Studies of America went broader, went to the provinces, to regions of Russia. If uh, during the Soviet time, it uh, American uh, studies were mostly concentrated in Moscow and St. Petersburg. In the 90s, 1990s, it went further to you know, my native city of Volgograd, for instance, to Chelyabinsk, to Tomsk, to, you know, to Tambov. Uh, so many Russian cities, uh, uni- local universities, regional universities started their own programs of the study of, of, of the United States. And uh, from the Marxist uh, paradigm, uh, the scholars turned to more like cultural studies, uh, 
to American studies of, as a you know uh, American studies in in terms of in terms of the study of American culture. It also um, uh, turns to the more uh, of the study of you know the new trends of the historical research, which uh, also arrived to Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union because Marxism was challenged. So right. all, of, all of them were applied to the study of America. So the, like local history, uh, micro history, cultural history, all of these trends could be find, found in the study of, of uh, Russian Americanism in the 90s. But then it, it's again changed. It's again changed because uh, during the Soviet time, the American studies was supported, were supported by the state. Well, it was like enemy studies. It was an important part of propaganda, important part of the you know political planning, and no more since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And so uh, the central institutions like the Institute for USA and Canada Studies uh, became weaker, and it became quite weaker in terms of resources, of state support, and uh, people... You know, young people stopped to apply for positions at that institute. So it was, it becoming less resourceful. Resourceful. This, uh, you can you can now see that some of the people on the leading positions in the contemporary Russia, in the leading position as I don't know, uh, state Duma deputies, uh, leading propagandists like Sergei Markov or Vyacheslav Nikonov, they started back in the Soviet time as a Americanist, as a uh, historians of uh, of the United States. So it was more like uh, state-linked uh, field in the Soviet time. So people who started with American studies could then proceed to some, you know, political circles to decision making, uh, and not no more, no more since the collapse of the Soviet Union. So now American scholars became more like a, I would say normal scholars of any other country. Well, it's also changed. Well, we have less resources, but we are much more spread in uh, geographically, in cities, more spread institutionally, in, in different universities and uh, Academy of Science uh, Institutes. So it was a change. And uh, methodologically, there are now people who study, so some people continue to study American foreign policy from the like realist point of view or new realist. Or, but other people uh, study American culture, American uh, perceptions, uh, and that's also part of a you know, current agenda of, of American studies. In that's really that's a really interesting parallel, I have to say, between what has happened with Russian studies in America, where and during the Cold War too, it was you know really more funded by the state. It was also more in tune with American foreign policy interests and also relations with the Soviet Union. Uh, the the types of research and questions that were asked were constricted, not just because of ideology, but because of access to sources. And since the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russian studies in America has broadened the types of questions, the types of methodologies that are used to understand Russia, but, and, and there's more, um, study of it, I think, you know, in general, but at the same time, the funding and the support to do that study has also decreased. <laughs> it, it's a very interesting parallel that I hadn't considered. Yeah, it, it looks like very similar, yeah, similar processes. When, but, you know, there is also a difference when recently, uh, you know, a new type of confrontation emerged between Russia and the United States. As far as I see, American scholars started to receive the, some funding back. 
uh, American scholars of Russia, but I don't see anything like that in Russia. I mean, we did not get any additional funding, at least uh, so far as I know, as I'm aware. Uh, uh, Russian state does not provide additional funding to study the United States, which is a difference uh, with American uh, yeah, we still we still have some funding avenues from the United States government, but uh, even even they're being constricted as well. But uh, yeah, you know, one of the main pioneers of Russian American studies is the work of Nikolai Bolkhovitinov, uh, and he remains one of the few historians um, that have actually been Russian historians of America that have been translated into English. I mean, his his two works on American early American Russian. American and Russian relations, and also Amer- Russian attitudes towards the American Revolutionary War. Um, talk about his, and, and he's a real giant in in the field of of amongst Russian scholars of America, and though he's dead now. Um, so, what talk about his contribution to uh, the Russian historiography of the United States? Uh, yes, Professor Bolkhavitinov was uh, one of my teachers. He was a, an advisor or consultant of my second dissertation, doctoral dissertation. Well, you know, we have. Two, two, two types of stations. The second one, the biggest one. And uh, so, uh, yes, he, he is uh, like a towering, uh, you know, figure in, in, in Russian, uh, among Russian historians of America. First of all, you know, he, most of his work uh, took place during the Soviet time, but he was not a part of a propaganda agenda. He was not uh, among so, those uh, scholars of America who worked for, you know, for propaganda, for state institutions. He studied early America, which was much less, uh, you know, relevant to the contemporary problems. And that probably that's, that was one of the reasons he achieved, uh, like, bigger and more interesting results, because he was not constrained by his work, was not constrained by ideology or by state purposes. So he studied early colonial and uh, revolutionary American, early uh, history of Russian-American relations uh, up to the you know, 1830s. And uh, yes, he, he was a pioneering, pioneering scholar who actually discovered to us uh, the, you know, the profound nature of Russian, early Russian-American relations. We found that uh, Russia and the United States started their uh, relations as a good friends, and he started. They, they were started uh, early, even before the American War for Independence. And uh, so, Bolkharitinov discovered actually a lot of uh, stories, a lot of um, you know, uh, a lot of uh, situations and facts, uh, historical facts that actually uh, helped us to understand that the Russian-American relations did not start it with the Cold War. <laughs> it started a long, long before and uh, you know now it's already like a common knowledge and everybody quote are quoting uh, like declaration of armed neutrality of Catherine the Great which actually supported American war for independence but before Bolkhavitinov it was a rare knowledge or most of of it uh, he discovered it in Russian archives he worked through all of the you know the huge amount of uh, primary documents primary sources in Russian archives and he discovered a lot of uh, important information there so he was a pioneer after him many people like you know like me like uh, many American uh, colleagues uh, like Norman Sol in the United States yeah, who uh, followed Bolkhavitinov's uh, you know in, in initiative some some of them some of us maybe went further but 
uh, he started Lukhavikin actually the you know put the uh, you know put the, uh, made the road. But you know also so what is also interesting that Bolkhavikin of well this is a relationship between American studies and the state. Khavitinov uh, got uh, awarded uh, by, you know, he became a member of Russian Academy of Sciences and he was awarded with a, a like, state uh, prize, uh, everything in the, mostly in the 1990s or uh, very uh, late 80s and 90s. So at the time of perestroika and at the time of the 1990s when Russian-American relations were good. I think that for the state, which actually awarded him with, uh, for, for his work that he's, he has been, had done back in the 60s and 70s, and the state recognized it only in the time when relations became much better than ever before. So the state decided that uh, his study of Russian-American relations of the time of uh, international friendship, uh, the time of mutual support, was important. So for the state, American American studies continued to be a tool of uh, political statements. So when Bolkhavitin of got his prize, not at the time when he did uh, his job, when he did his work, but when the state discovered it uh, and used it for us, I, I'm afraid that uh, today Volkhavitinov uh, again could not receive any, any prize from the state. And this is a, like, you know, irony of, of uh, American studies in, in Russia. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating because I, um, I am teaching a class right now on U.S.-Russia relations and and, and this is the first time I've taught the class and going and looking for syllabi examples of how to, you know, what to do, what to assign. And I couldn't find any class, uh, at least that had a syllabus online in American university that dealt with American-Russian relations in the 19th century. It was, it's really shocking. And then when I started to, you know, look at Norman Saul's book I look at other books that the few books that do treat the period, um, there's just a wealth of interesting contacts between the United States, Americans, and Russians, you know, beginning in the colonial period. Yes, it was a very interesting uh, period. And, uh, you know, it was uh, underestimated, probably understudied in both countries, probably because of the Cold War, probably because uh, historians of Russian-American relations tend to study Cold War, or now, by now, even Cold War looks like uh, old history, but the 19th century, well, it's it's well, well, far, far beyond any interest, and unfortunately. Yeah, well, your your book, your first book, at least, which the English uh, translation of the title is Partners Across the Ocean, the United States and Russia, 1830 to the 1850s, you deal with these uh, not only the official relations between, say, the Russian state and the American state, but also various cultural relations, various contacts between peoples. Um, so, talk about you know your book and the relationships and the relations between Russia and the United States in in the early nineteenth century. Oh yes, it was you know my my book was devoted to the period of the probably the best relations, best period of relations between Russia and the United States. A period well, uh, it probably continued till eighteen sixties, including the American Civil War period until at least the uh, sale of Alaska. But it started all started in the late thirties, eighteen thirties. And that was a time when uh, Russia and the United States, for several occasions, for several different uh, 
programs that both countries uh, try to develop supported each other and supported uh, you know over the head of European uh, rivals or European partners and that was an interesting period you know late in the 1830s uh, Russia under the Tsar Nicholas the first decided to modernize Russian technology to build railroads to then to establish telegraph lines and, uh, and Nicholas decided uh, uh, upon the advice of his uh, engineers, decided to invite American engineers, American specialists, American uh, workers to help him to modernize Russian empire. And, you know, the first big Russian railroad between Moscow and St. Petersburg was built under the, you know, with uh, technological expertise of American uh, engineers. Uh, the head was James uh, George Washington Whistler, who was a chief construction engineer of the railroad. And by the way, uh, Whistler brought his son with him, James McNeil Whistler, who later became the first, you know, great American uh, painter. And, those, and yes, and the and younger Whistler actually uh, taught to to study to to paint here in the uh, in the Russian uh, Academy of Fine Arts. So it was his youth, yeah, when he was a teenager. But yes, uh, getting back. So that was, uh, Russia invited, and probably Russia was the first European country, at least among the big European powers of that time, that relied on American expertise. So uh, Russia even helped, I would dare to say, to say that Russia helped, helped Americans to start thinking about themselves as a leaders in technology inventions and you know and that was a like a rediscovery of americans for themselves because you know great power by that time uh, russia uh, relied on, on on america and that was actually the one of the reasons why uh, relations between those be, between two countries at, those, at that time was became so you know cordial friendly and then Crimean War, Crimean War when Russia fought against coalition of European countries and America was uh, sympathetic to Russia. And even uh, like 30 to 40 American surgeons arrived to Russia to serve in Russian hospitals uh, during the war in actually in Crimea. And uh, half of almost half of them died because of the uh, diseases and typhoids. So that was a part. And then, uh, you know, again, when civil war started in the United States, it was Russia that, oh, the only European power that supported, uh, supported, uh, federal cause, the North in the civil war was, was Russia because England, uh, Great Britain and France, uh, tried to play both cards and tried to, you know, it was a s attempts to recognize South as a belligerent, as a side in the war. And Russia was the only, uh, European power that supported the uh, Lincoln government. So that was an important part. So that was a period of, of mutual, let's say, collaboration, friendship. And from the point of view of the 20th century, it was always strange, almost. Every, every scholar who studies say why Russia and the United States were so friendly despite the like philosophical or social uh, political differences. So at one hand, we had a democratic republic on the other, you know, uh, autocratic monarchy. But, you know, because, because that was not uh, the major uh, point of comparison, you know, be, be, because in the, the middle of the 20th century, uh, countries compared itself uh, on different uh, ways. They both they both had the similar problems and similar achievements. Like you know, two countries in the first half of the 19th century, uh, you know, made a big uh, 
territorial expansion when the United States expanded into former Mexico, Russia expanded to the Caucasus and the Middle Asia. And that was a, a very similar, according to 19th century observers, of course, it was very similar processes. Uh, both countries also had a you know, main problems uh, like serfdom and slavery, you know, and they compared it all the time. Yeah, I want to ask you about this issue of comparing uh, Russian serfdom and American slavery, because this is something that you've you've actually written about as well. And and particularly how from the American side, how slavery, the abolition of slavery was understood and, and formed in relationship to either, you know, calling for the abolition, I mean, the abolition of serfdom in Russia used to as an argument for or against the abolition of slavery in America. So to, how was serfdom and s- slavery? Uh, how can you look at them and compare them? And what? how was uh, their mutual abolition seen in Russia and the United States? Yes, this is one of the you know, most interest, interesting, most intriguing uh, story of the middle of the 19th century. You know, uh, sometimes when I now publish, uh, well, write about this uh, comparison in, in contemporary journals, I I got a response from, from editors, so, you know, from saying, you know, the serfdom and slavery are different phenomena. And of course, I know that was different. For, on, on many, you know, many criteria, it was a different uh, story, different uh, origin, different, you know, uh, social or, you know, legal, uh, and all of this, uh, you know, different. All the differences existed. But uh, when we go back to the 19th century, of both countries and you know, political uh, politicians on both sides, on, on both countries, uh, defenders and critics of uh, serfdom and slavery. They uh, prefer to find the similar, uh, the similar similarity between serfdom and slavery. It was both uh, the institutes of unfreedom, uh, institutes of uh, bondage, institutes of uh, you know forced labor, and this that was made, made made the two institutions so similar. And that was used, you know, it was used by uh, those who defended uh, serfdom uh, or slavery. They used the Example of the other country, uh, you know, saying you, you see that the great country, uh, okay, uh, American defenders of serfdom, including like John Fiske or you know other ideologists of the South, uh, they attracted Russian uh, experiences, saying that you see one of the biggest uh, and strongest powers of Europe has serfdom and it doesn't, uh, you know, does not prevent them to be a great power and that. We can keep slavery as well. And on the Russian side, it was uh, very similar. Like defenders of serfdom say, you know, the most progressive country is the earth uh, had slavery. Why we should uh, get rid of serfdom? But also, and maybe even with a, you know, with a bigger uh, force, with a, with a uh, bigger, you know, uh, enthusiasm, the critics on both countries use the example of the other country. I have a very uh, interesting story, which I found some when I wrote my book, uh, that was simultaneous, almost simultaneously, uh, two people, two professors, actually, Russian and American, uh, they did not know about each other. I don't, I'm not know, uh, I don't know if they ever heard the names of each other. They were not acquainted at, at all. But they made, actually, the similar lectures, one in Russia and another in America. And uh, Dmitry Kachinovsky, at that time, he was a professor of Kharkov University, and that time Russia, uh, today's Ukraine, but at that time Russian Empire. And he, uh, in the fall of uh, 1860, uh, 1856, he devoted the, you know, the 
big lecture uh, to the American slavery. He criticized American slavery for, you know, on, on, on many grounds, as economically inefficient, as uh, morally degrading, as, you know, bad uh, uh, thing for both, uh, you know, masters and slaves. And that was very popular lecture. He a lot of the whole city, almost whole city, came to, to to listen to him because everybody understood that he critis- he was criticizing serfdom, but he criticized serfdom openly because in Russia that was a censorship. He was banned from you know he could not criticize the state establishment. So he criticized slavery, and everybody understood that it was a big deal in criticizing serfdom. So so-called Ethiopian language, as Russian liberals call it, but it's the same. Fall. I don't know exact days, but the same fall. Uh, Andrew Dixon White, the future uh, founder of Cornell University and first president, future first president of Cornell, at that time young uh, professor just back from the, his travel to Russia, he uh, delivered a lecture about Russian serfdom. He delivered a lecture on serfdom, and he criticized serfdom. The same way that criticize slavery, that serfdom is a, a morally degrading and economically insufficient, uh, inefficient, uh, that serfdom is, uh, deg- uh, degrades both masters and serfs. And he did all the same thing. And you can read in, uh, in White's uh, autobiography. He remembers his lecture and he said that his friends, abolitionists, uh, approached him after his lecture and asked him why he did not mention slavery in his lecture, why he only criticized serfdom and did not mention the home institution of slavery. And then Dixon White responded, you know that if I would speak about slavery, half of my audience stopped listening to me because you know, abolitionists were considered to be uh, you know, dangerous people and criticizing slavery in the 50s in the United States was not an easy way, even without censorship. There was no censorship as a state, state institutions. But, you know, mainstream audience would not want to, to listen about slavery. So uh, Andrew Dixon White invented the same way that Kachinov in Russia to criticize serfdom and made people think about the similarities and begins to think to, to, to criticize slavery. That was a part of it. And of course, uh, you know, uh, in the early 60s, uh, Russia was first to abolish serfdom. And uh, in February or early March in, in, uh, of, of uh, 1861, and, well, it was exactly the time when American Civil War started. And uh, abolitionists first uh, tried to use this example of Russian abolition of serfdom and their propaganda. And then uh, when Abraham Lincoln, President Lincoln, decided that, well, made his mind about the uh, Emancipation Proclamation, about the abolitionism, he also used the Russian example. Uh, his envoy to Russia, actually the acting uh, uh, minister of charge d'affaires, uh, Bayard Taylor, who just went back from, from Russia, from St. Petersburg to, to, to the United States, uh, he delivered lectures also about the abolition of uh, serfdom in Russia. And Lincoln actually asked him, there is a, in, in the papers of Abraham Lincoln, he asked him to continue re- uh, lecturing on that topic because it was important to to show a Russian example and uh, to, to, you know, to spread the uh, example, to spread the model that Russia used to abolition of serfdom. And that was an important part of the propaganda. It was one of the, one of the rare, rare historical periods when Russia was ahead of the United States.
and Americans used Russian example to to solve some social problems. It was much more often it was you know uh, all the way around, but that was the time when Russia was the first. Wow, that's that's a great story. Um, and and this goes to another uh, key aspect of your work, but also the work of. Uh, uh, Victoria Zhuryleva and uh, David Forlingson here in the United States, and that is to look at how Russian and American identity are construct- constructed in relationship to each other. So how has this mutual construction through the other between the United States and Russia shaped U.S.-Russia relations? Yeah, another great question. Yeah, uh, you know, I would say that we, uh, now all of us here, you mentioned Victoria Zhuryleva and David Forlingson, who are, you know, we consider them ourselves uh, as a kind of constructivist in terms of methodology, and that's for us is important uh, uh, methodology approach to the history of Russian-American relations is to look into the um, you know to the identities or you know competing identities of the each country, and how those identities uh, use the uh, image of the other country, the perception of the other country uh, is also is always used uh, to construct. Uh, you know, your own or our own identity. And Russia and the United States, uh, since the late 19th century at least, not not just from the Cold War, but uh, since the late 19th century, uh, Russia and the United States played the role of so-called constitutive, uh, important other for each, for each other. What does it mean? Uh, you know, I would start the first probably example, uh, you know, Visual example was a period when American uh, attitude, American relation to Russia began to te- deteriorate. It was approximately uh, the late 70s of the 19th century, 1870s, 1880s. First time after that period of friendship that I was talking about before, uh, began to, to be changed into uh, criticism, uh, discovery of Russian uh, authoritarianism or, you know, uh, Russian uh, illiberal uh, nature of Russian state and all of the stuff that we very well know. Uh, but the question uh, what usually historians ask is why only in that time or why in the 70s? That is a several uh, possible uh, responses, uh, answers to that. And Victoria Zhuravlyov in, in her excellent book, uh, you know, Address that. So, in, in, in this response, I will I will use her her study. You know, uh, that was a period. Not no, actually, David Foglison also mentioned that in one of his articles. So that was about the uh, different explanations: economic explanation and explanation that Americans just learn more about Russia. And all of this, all of those explanations look a bit weak. There are some. And one of the, you know, constructivist explanation was different. It was about not about uh, how Russia became different uh, suddenly, but how uh, America uh, look, lived through the huge crisis in in dealing with its own identity. It was the time. It was about the time of the end of the Reconstruction. And you remember that end of the Reconstruction was a huge crisis because, uh, you know, the North withdrew the uh, federal. Uh, army from the south and south immediately almost immediately reinstated like white power in the uh, in the south uh, in, in the southern uh, states and municipalities and you know the jim crow laws were reestablished so for many for many people in the united states it was a very uh, like bad period of uh, reconsidering uh, the results of the civil war okay what, what 
But with 4-4, if now we get uh, the white power back in the south, if not the slavery, but everything looked not, not quite good. And, well, and the President Grant administration was infamous for corruption, unfortunately. Well, it was widely, widely uh, learned uh, story. And the very end of the reconstruction looked like, uh, you know, hidden bargain between north and the south and politicians. So everything looked very bad. And at that point, Americans... Uh, like discovered that Russia was even worse, you know. Discovered is that well, we have the country which uh, even worse that we. And that was an important. It was important uh, uh, story to find somebody uh, who is you know whose social and the political uh, reality was even worse than American. And that was a you know for American uh, politicians, for American uh, journalists, it was important to. Uh, to write about Russia as an inferior in terms of political uh, and social conditions. And that was a kind of re-establishment the uh, fate, the establishment of the self-confidence of the Americans. And that was used in the 70s. It was a, a very rapid deterioration of American uh, perception of Russia or American image in the United States. It was coincided, but not just coincided, it was a part of this identity struggle. And it is similar, well, I, you can argue, I know that there is uh, also different explanations of the uh, story how the, uh, one century later, in the 1970s, how the story of uh, detente ended. And that was very similar, well, not exactly the same, but very similar story. It was a time of a huge crisis of American identity. You know, in the middle of the 70s, Americans found themselves, uh, well, uh, you know, all like three major pillars of American self-confidence, you know, military power, economic uh, greatness and uh, political system was were in crisis. You know, military power ended with a defeat in Vietnam War or withdrawal from Vietnam. Uh, economic power suffered from the uh, economic crisis imposed by, you know, OPEC, uh, the uh, oil exporter, petroleum exporter countries. And that was a big economic crisis and big blow on American economy. And political system, of course, it was a Watergate. And everything within several months, you know, everything like within one year, probably. And that was a big crisis for American identity. And, uh, that, and at that point, uh, you know, uh, by that time, uh, the Soviet-American Soviet relations were in a relatively good shape after, you know, Nixon and Brezhnev Accords, a lot of... Uh, uh, treaties were assigned, uh, you know, the joint space flight, uh, Apollo-Soyuz uh, took place, and, you know, even the the only history joint movie, uh, Bluebird, was, was made in Hollywood and the Soviet uh, movie makers. So everything was in a good shape, and that, then President Carter actually, uh, like, changes the uh, attention of the Russian-American relations into, uh, into the way of supporting uh, human rights in, in, you know, uh, civil rights and criticizing the violation of civil rights in the Soviet Union. Well, it was natural because it was dissidents that were uh, pressure on Carter and Carter was a religious person, so it was natural for him. But actually, it looks like he, uh, you know, uh, that Carter, President Carter and his advisors sacrificed all of the achievement of uh, previous detente uh, in order to, well, to criticize civil rights violations, even without achieving anything. I mean, he, why he did it? It's hard to explain if you try to explain it from the strategic, I don't know, or just purely Russian-American relations, but it's uh, it looks more 
you know, it, it looks easier to explain if you if you understand that Carter's major goal was to uh, re-establish American self-confidence. And if you know, it just position yourself on the Carter or his advisor's place in the middle of the 70s. You look around. What is the, what you can be proud as Americans at that point? No, not military, not economy, not uh, even political system. But what was the biggest uh, recent achievement? The civil rights movements. Uh, movement. It's the 60s uh, civil rights movement by the middle of the 70s achieved a very significant uh, you know, results. There's no segregation in the South. There are universal uh, access for black people to university schools and anything. So it was a real achievement of the American, uh, American society by the time of Carter. So he looked around and he found he just projected civil rights agenda into the foreign relations with the, United, with the Soviet Union. And he found that Okay, the Soviet Union violates civil rights, violates human rights. It was, you know, projected in the Russian, uh, in the Soviet case, it was no, not civil rights, but human rights, but it was similar agenda. And that's actually here, uh, you know, if you want to look better than your rival, you should find the, the you know, the field where you are really better. You know, you know, just 20 years before Carter, no American president will ever think to compare the civil rights in Russia and the United States because, you know, the immediate response would be, you know, you have segregation in the South. You know, Russia had nothing like that, but you had segregation. How you can ever think about that? But by the Carter time, it was already possible. Moreover, America looked much better than the Soviet Union, so he projected. He Actually, he uh, sacrificed the whole achievement of Nixon administration, and but that was not as important for him as to reestablish them to reestablish American self-confidence. Yeah, I think in, if I'm not mistaken, um, I, I was kind of looking around to see if I have David Forlingsong's book here because I recall a, a very explicit statement by Carter where you know pressing the Soviet Union on human rights will help Americans pull them out of the malaise and 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 basically believe in America's kind uh, historical mission again, a historical mission to spread freedom and democracy and these things. So I, I think he was, I mean, he was very explicit, at least to his advisors about, uh, about this idea. Yes, exactly. Yeah, actually, actually, when I speak, speak about this, I borrow from, you know, Victoria and David's books, because, well, my, you know, my better expertise is the 19th century, but I, of course, I read the Victoria and David is writing. Can I agree? This is, a, you know, it's a great approach to a great way to approach Russian-American relations because you know even the contemporary uh, relations, uh, if you look from this constructivist point of view, will look a bit different from what you have now in the American uh, media. Because if if you if you look at how well if if you look as a constructivist, you will see that Russia is a uh, not the major uh, troublemaker, but the Russia is is a well, I would say a tool, a stick by which American media, American, you know, society tried to beat uh, President Trump. So Russia is not, not the reason, but the tool to, you know, to, to beat. And, but, well, I know that many in the United States would probably disagree with me, but this is what, this is a constructivist approach. And this is very, very similar. It reminds a lot of stories in the past, which probably contemporary public don't, don't remember, but as a historian, we know. Right, right. Now, and what about the other way around? What about the construction of Russian identity in relationship to the United States? Can you uh, comment on that as well? Oh, yes. It's it's also the important part of, of, of Russian, uh, well, 
would say I would I would probably start with a recent uh, story, but again, it's 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 took part uh, took start uh, much earlier. Well, the recent story was uh, for me it's period after 2011 2012. Uh, that was a previous uh, Russian elections, elections of state Duma, and the presidential elections, which. Uh, were you know followed by the huge demonstration against against rigged elections against the falsification in elections especially in Moscow and that was a like big uh, first big opposition demonstration in the uh, contemporary Russian history and that actually uh, forced uh, you know President Putin and his advisor in this way uh, forced uh, to change the whole you know. Uh, change the whole propaganda, and that uh, his major uh, task at that point was to alienate uh, the leaders of uh, opposition, and to alienate the leaders of opposition, uh, he decided. Well, again, when I speak about presidents, of course, it means that the whole, the whole people, the whole advisors, and made the presidential. But it's for you know for the sake of the uh, clarity. Okay, uh, so that idea was to. Alienate the opposition. And to alienate the opposition, uh, the idea was to link the opposition to the United States. Russian, all the Russian oppositions had some experience of dealing with Americans. Some of them studied in the United States. Some of them got some, you know, back some grants from American organizations. Some of them, you know, attended American embassy receptions or, you know, or, have, or just have friends among them. So uh, they established these links to the major figures in Russian opposition. And then the second step demanded, required to portray the United States as a very, uh, you know, uh, demonic style, as a country which uh, had the only uh, goal is to diminish Russia, Russian greatness or to, you know, sabotage uh, Russian development and to, well, Actually, the, uh, to, to, to portray uh, America as an adversary, as a foe. Because, you know, without that, all of the links, linkage of the opposition to America means nothing. But if the, this is a link to the enemy, actually, this is a bad thing. So uh, this deterioration of Russian-American relations recently was, was actually connected not to anything that America did or did not, but about the uh, requirements or demands of the propaganda to alienate the Russian opposition. And that was a part how Russian, uh, you know, View on, uh, recent view on America was changed by propaganda. But if you look back in the earlier time, uh, for, you know, uh, okay, back to the very early, early period of time, you know, there were several images of, of uh, America in, in Russia. And, uh, you know, I mean, several, you know, major images of, of America in Russia. If you, if you start with the 18th century, we see the first image of America was a country of uh, Native Americans, of Indians. Then it was a country of freedom. It was very important, and it continued to be, uh, continued at least until the end of the 20th century. That was a uh, country of uh, inventors and engineers. And then it was a country of, uh, you know, of gold and, and, and richness. So it was a lot of uh, images. And Russians use, use that images to, uh, to build their own identity in, in, in many cases. They compare it itself to, to America and not just to real America, but to imagine it America. 
because uh, you know every every Russian reformer or every Russian revolutionary used America as an example. But uh, when he described he or she described America, uh, it was usually the description of the imagined utopia or you know the country which sometimes was very little in common with the real United States. But, well, very few people travel it and uh, much more read and uh, ascribe to America the uh, ideas they wanted to achieve. And most of the Russian revolutionaries, so starting with Decembrist, you know, starting with Radishev event, they all had America in mind. And, you know, Decembrist, uh, you know, Russian nobility that revolted against uh, the Tsarism in uh, 1825, uh, Decembrist uh, used American constitution and even constitutions of uh, different American states, uh, Massachusetts and others, uh, as a model to write their projects of Russian constitution. And uh, on the other hand, uh, when Russian conservatives uh, wanted to, you know, wanted to freeze Russian society, the development of Russian you know, public sphere. They used America as a threat, and they tried to portray the United States as a threatening uh, power or a threatening example. Even uh, if you start with the uh, you know, 19th century, when it was not yet a major power, but it was already threatening example. And that was I read the you know school textbook uh, of the early 20th century. It was still the Russian Empire under the Tsars, and I read that interesting passage from from that state textbook, uh, Russian textbook which uh, portrays, well, it was a uh, history of uh, the United States. It was a history of the American War for Independence and the creation of a constitution. And then the author of the uh, textbook uh, concluded his description of American constitution with, uh, uh, with such a you know, statement. Uh, but there were two problems that the constitution did not solve. The first problem was the... Uh, uh, slavery, and that actually led to the civil war uh, a generation later. And the second problem was the uh, constant uh, elections, which problem uh, you know causes the problem of uh, you know mutinous and uh, instability. So for, for for that period, you know. Uh, elections were equal to, to, you know, to raise problems in description of some Russian uh, textbook authors, well, because they did not want it, the elections for Russia. That's easy. I want to ask you about teaching American history in Russia. Um, how, how is it usually taught, and, and how do students, and more importantly, how do students relate to American history, and what kind of things interest them about it? You know, when students come to, to study American history, well, they... No, major, not all of them, but majority of them want to study recent history because, well, probably because most of them don't know much about the old history. They, you know, they eager, and I try to convince them. Or okay, I teach the whole courses, and I used to teach a whole course of American history, and that's uh, try to convince that there are also they were also interesting periods in the, you know, in the nineteenth century, in the even late eighteenth century, or. Well, and uh, so I have uh, like a division between those who continue to to write essays or you know course papers on the recent like foreign policy of of the United States in the different you know in the different geographical areas or different uh, places or in the different periods, but recent periods. And uh, others are getting more interested by my story about the early relations and. 
And they study the early relations, which also provides a lot of uh, interesting, you know, thought for this for the mind. And it's uh, about the first travelers to both countries, the first, uh, you know, rec- description, perceptions of, of two countries. So I have like a division between, you know, those who study uh, 200 years ago and those who study the last 20 years. And that's it. It's my my. I know that there's maybe different with different professors, but this is my experience. Right, right, right. Well, I hope I hope some of them are. I mean, more interested in writing about the United States and the night. I mean, here in the United States, uh, writing about relations with Russia and the night not really dealt with that much at all. And finally, I I want to ask you since you are at uh, European European University Saint Petersburg, I want to ask you about the situation there and what the university has been struggling with. Uh, because it has been under a legal attack, it's it's had its uh, teaching license stripped, and it's you know under pretty much constant threat of closure through the courts. And so, can you talk a bit about what's happening at the European University and, and where you think this all might go? Well, it's a it's a pity situation. Uh, it all started uh, more than a year ago. Uh, we got like simultaneous uh, series of uh, you know state. Bodies coming to university to check uh, the, you know, to check everything from the, uh, from the, you know, paper, paperwork done to the state of the building we rent and all of that, you know, at the same time. They had a complaints in hand that we, uh, some of them were strange, uh, you know, uh, about absence of the gym in, in the university, which, and, and, and some of them even, you know, more stranger. But, uh, well, uh, the university responded to most of the attacks, but but some of the uh, some of the problems went to the courts, and the courts continued to, through all the last previous academic year, and it ended with uh, last you know this uh, late uh, summer with uh, re- revocation of the license of the university, and actually and uh, another. You know, loss of the university was that we got uh, our, uh, you know, rent agreement about the pits we occupied, the university occupied since its uh, creation in the 1994. The palace in the center of Petersburg. It was the, the rent agreement was revoked, and uh, well, during we, we do not know actually what happened and why it was. Of course, there are several. There were several explanations. We saw from the just from bureaucratic uh, over uh, stretching, you know, bureaucratic uh, requirements, which uh, you know, just occasion, just by occasion, by 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 case. Uh, was focused on the European University to idea that somebody just wants wanted our palace, you know, some uh, big influential uh, somebody wants this you know palace for for him or for 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 his company. Uh, to political, of course, political explanation that uh, the university is too liberal for to contemporary Russia, or the university is links to. Link it to I don't know Alexei Kudrin, who is a member of who, one of the trustees of the university. And Kudrin is an influential person. He is somewhere near Putin, but at the same time, he is a uh, he considered to be a leader of uh, like a more liberal uh, part of the Russian systemic elite. And you know that's probably was a inter inter elite uh, struggle, and we are just victims of that. So it was a lot of explanation. Nobody 
uh, nobody took responsibility, you know, like after the terrorist attack, nobody. <laughs> what started, uh, how, after the license was revoked, uh, we, before actually it was revoked, we got several uh, promises from the top uh, bureaucracy and the educational bureaucracies that it was just a technical problem, you should reapply, we very soon and very quickly re-establish your license under the new condition. And the university uh, re-filed uh, the you know, request to re-establish the, the license in September. And what happened after, since that, it actually, uh, you know, excluded several of the explanation of, of what was going on. Because uh, the educational authorities first send them the commission, which consisted of the people famous for always writing negative uh, results. So the so-called professional killers, people who are specialized on, on writing, that was. And uh, they wrote a negative uh, response, a negative report without explanation. You know, they just, you know, one line that the university does not provide the conditions for teaching and without actually uh, elaboration, which exactly conditions are not you know what used and when our rector asked them what exactly was wrong they did not answer well, actually they answered it you know we are not a consultant we are just and that so uh, at this point we understood finally that it was not a bureaucratic uh, coincidence and that's some somebody this is a direct attack this is direct attack. and probably this is not a, just an attack by educational authorities somebody behind them we don't know we still do not know what behind them it's probably the so-called siloviki people in you know, people in fsb or somewhere else it may be again this is i, I speculate also i don't know but i can speculate that it may be cons- uh, somehow connected to the you know the season of presidential elections even with uh, our you know after the last uh, presidential election which i mentioned which ended with a mass protest probably somebody in the siloviki in this uh, block uh, are very much afraid of any centers of uh, you know uh, alternative thinking and probably they wanted to attack us you know, attack us uh, on the eve of the presidential election. But again, this is my speculation because, again, still nobody took responsibility. And but if this is true somehow, in one way or another, so we should probably have problems till the elections, election day. And uh, and we don't know what followed. It will follow it with a, you know, overall closure, or maybe the things will be better since that time. But unfortunately, we already started the academic year without students. And this is a is this is already a big loss, big loss for students, big loss for professors, big loss for a, a Russian educational system. Because I would say, I would add here that European University is a small university, is a small and uh, but it's in no way insignificant because uh, all of the Russian professors, at least all the professors of social science and humanities throughout Russia, know about the European University and consider the European University as a well, is a model, uh, is something which can exist in, in the Russian educational soil because most of the state universities are now suffering under the bureaucratic pressure. And people, professors there, look uh, at the European University as a, uh, you know, as an alternative, as an example of the possible alternative. They have hopes that this type of education, this type of organization of education is possible on the Russian soil. And if a European university will be closed altogether, it will be the big blow on all of the hopes. 
throughout the Russian academia, and that will be the loss which may be even worse than the like loss of these several hundred people in, in St. Petersburg. It will be a big for the Russian educational community. We all hope that we will survive and we will reestablish our uh, license, but the situation is great now. That was Ivan Karilla, a professor of history and international relations at the European University at St. Petersburg, where he specializes in the history of U.S.-Russia relations, especially during the American antebellum period and the American Civil War. He's the author of many articles and books, and you can find some of his scholarship in English in the article, The Abolition of Serfdom in Russia, an American Newspaper and Journal Opinion, in the book New Perspectives on Russian-American Relations, edited by Norman Saul, and co-authored with Victoria Jirilova, Russian-Soviet Studies in the United States, Americanistica in Russia, Mutual, Re Mutual Representations in Academic Projects, published by Lexington Books. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thank you to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye! Thank you.